and welcome to The Art of Comedy. I'm Maggie Casella, coming to you from Peach Radio at the Peach Gallery in beautiful downtown Toronto. Yes, that's a lot of peach. But who doesn't love a nice, juicy peach? <laughs> I did say that. Uh, this episode, we're going to talk with the lovely and talented Katie Ford about the art of comedy and what, well, whatever else flows. The loveliness, really. Well, yes. Yeah. Or whatever else flows organically from the conversation. <laughs> Wonderful. I had to say organic in conversation at least once because Beautiful. I wanted to be that person. You're going to brand it. I am. It sounds smart. You don't, doesn't it? It's got a lot of syllables. <laughs> um, and for those of you not familiar with uh, Katie's work, she has written scripts for tiny little shows like Family Ties, Desperate Housewives, and was the co-writer and creator of a little film called Miss Congeniality, which is uh, actually, mm, Katie, one of those movies that. I could watch over and over. This is what I hear. I don't get yeah. it. Like that, it's just weird. I'm never, it's like, oh, Miss Congeniality, I'll watch that again. Um, but don't don't answer that yet because I want to talk uh, more about that later. Um, and I think I want to start with a question that a lot of people ask last. Okay, I'm already worried. I see the glint. Uh, the glint is there a the glint? Eye. Yeah, a little Can't glint. see the At glint in, in radio. Yeah, okay. Oh, no, that's just because I poked myself. It's okay. in her good eye. It's in my, <laughs> I got a glint in this eye. <laughs> nice. Um, so, yeah, because I'm hoping for more of a conversation instead of I ask you questions and, and that kind of thing. Great, We're trying beautiful. to also revive the art of comedy here. Okay. Um, uh, the art of conversation, I should say. Um, so, oh. are you ready? Are you ready? I'm, I believe so. Okay. Yes. So, you're dead. My what? You're dead. Oh, I'm dead. You're dead. I thought so. Why yeah. else would I be here? Oh, sort of weird. <laughs> no, it's dead. And that's why you're here doing a podcast <laughs> with me beautiful. in beautiful downtown Toronto. Very peachy. Uh, yeah. So, um. What do you uh, hope to leave as your legacy? Oh. See, we tricked you with that one. We didn't give you that one in the wow. pre-interview. So well, that's a... That's first of all, probably a lot of old dogs I'll be leaving behind. But um, I think that I made a, someone's day a little bit better or that I sort of brightened some, you know, lifted some spirits along the way. Not what? the dead, but I, I'm also gifted at that. Are you? Are you also yeah. psychic? I sometimes. Oh, that's. Did you know I was going to ask yeah, that did. question? Yeah, you see, didn't at all. You're not already. even ready for the first question. <laughs> if you were psychic, you would have known. No, it's really true. No, okay. So let me let, just stop a minute. Uh, when you say a lot of old dogs, I, I know I'm supposed to say to, to look at the other side of that answer, but I, I you know, I'm a dog person. Oh, so God, yeah. when you say a lot of old dogs, why do you want to leave a lot of old dogs behind? I really don't. I'd love them to find good homes, but I'm just saying yeah. That's that awful, like, actually. Yeah, no, it truly is. Can we start again? Okay, when you say you want to leave a lot of old dogs behind, <laughs> you don't mean homeless. So you, you like to rescue dogs. I do, the, the, I, yeah. You, you rescued a dog named Ollie. I did. I rescued an old dog from uh, L.A. He lived on a ranch, which was actually the um, location for one of the Knott's Landing ranches. Wow. But only in L.A. do you get a dog from something like that. Ollie, Ollie had, a, uh, had a IMDb. He, a, a, <laughs> he really did. <laughs> You know, only one I and an IMDb page. No, but I thought he was like 10. They told me he was 10. I get the papers. He's 13. So only in L.A. do they also lie about the dog's age. That's but, hilarious. Um, yeah. They but age the care. dog down. Yeah. <laughs> totally. He's 10 in, yeah. in L.A. years. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, Ollie was adorable. Nine. I mean, he was, he was yeah. a great dog. I remember when he peed on my dining room floor. Wasn't that great? Well, it was a long dinner party, and we were all having a good time. You were mortified. You were so generous. Who cares? Yeah. He was a great little dog. I mean, not a lot of people would rescue a 13-year-old dog, and that's a... Uh, I really thought well, he she was She didn't. 10, she then. thought he was 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, she she would knew he was 13. God, no. <laughs> Boom. That's yeah. Shannon McDonough, people, yeah. if, you, uh, if I haven't bothered to introduce my producer. Hi, uh, Shannon. Shannon is here. Um all right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, comedy and writing and, and uh, the art of writing comedy. Uh, what were you thinking when you set out to actually 
do this uh, when you set out on this path? Did you say, I want to be a comic or I want to be a writer or I want to be in a play? Let's put on a play, Mickey. <laughs> Originally, I wanted to be a child actress. My, I know, terrifying. So I'd be a, a little you know, strung out heroin addict by now, which would be, right. you know, we'd probably be here. Or if you're Drew Barrymore, you'd be successful. No, it's true. It is possible. Um, so I wanted to do that. And uh, my aunt was actually an actress. She was on show called Another World. Okay, soap well, opera. let's stop and tee, tee your aunt up then. All right, just, okay, just uh, Constance Ford. Yes. Uh, what an incredible resume she had. I mean, she was on things like Father Knows Best, Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> yeah. Gunsmoke, The Untouchables, Perry Mason, Rawhide, <laughs> Twilight Zone, Edge of Night, but spent 25 years on Another World. Mm -hmm. So that obviously influenced you clearly well it did and and well she was also um in the original production of death of a salesman oh it's in the book really it's in the you know when you have the cast she's there i mean she had an unbelievable in the original career. book yeah wow yeah so um but yeah it was great i mean you know growing up in new york and we would go she would take us like to sardis and stuff like that and we'd go oh. home to our ramshackle house in the limousine you know cruising oh, the neighborhood nobody was ever out i don't know why they weren't on the street in those one <laughs> the slow creep by but um go slower go slower <laughs> totally I want to play the horn for no good reason so that was like it just sort of seemed matter of fact but i mean to me she was just sort of this larger than life you know, person who would hail a ca cab wearing a cape. So that was just embarrassing, you know, so. And why would she be wearing a cape? I don't know, because she was <laughs> dramatic and, you know. So every wingnut on the planet, and I don't mean to be disparaging, what am I saying? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> thinks they can be famous. Mm. And um, because they can be on this show or that show and, you know, America's got talent or Britain's got talent or somebody's got talent or no one has talent. But <laughs> some people, oddly, people have talent. almost all of those people have talent because I think they're already professionals yeah. as as it as it's turned out. Right. So do you think that gives people some sort of sense of uh, is, is it emboldened people to go into comedy more, you think? Because it's like, oh, I can be on TV right well, away. Back then, I mean, because I started stand up at 14 when I was 14. What? When we Stop. Moved to Toronto, 14. But, but what? We, but back then it wasn't like. You did things to be famous. There's I hear some banging. There's something. I really <laughs> somebody's knocking. Was, I told Let you I was in. a medium. I will really interpret what they're saying yep, from the, beyond. That's hilarious. From um, the old country. So go ahead. You started when you were 14. Um, but anyway, I was going to say, like, famous wasn't as much the motivation. It didn't seem as it is now. You know? Was it for you to be famous? Um, I, 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 and I have said this, and this is what I want to talk to you about between writing and performing. You said you wanted to be a child actor. <laughs> It sounds, um, sounds worse coming when you say it back to me, by the way. It's hilarious. So you, you see that, but the thing is, is why did you want to be a child actor? What was mm. in it for you if it wasn't fame? Because you're a kid. Right. So what's the draw? What is the draw? What was the draw? Was I want to be like Aunt Connie or is it? You know, I wanted to be on, my sister and I wanted to be on Eight is Enough. You know, we were like, you know, Eight is Enough, but wouldn't 10 be better? That kind of thing. Because <laughs> so, your sister's a twin. That's yeah. hilarious. So it was, it, it was a dream, you know, it was a dream to sort of, you know, be in LA and sort of, I didn't even know what the dream was necessarily. So how do you get from, you know, being this kid who wants to be a child actor to being this incredibly accomplished writer? And, and this will answer your question to me, which is I always say, even now, if somebody would just pay me to write, then I wouldn't have to worry about my hair or my weight mm -hmm. or my age or anything else, although age is a factor even in writing in this business. Um, 
I would just pay, I, I'd love to just write. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking I read in your bio where you were like, okay, it came to the point where, is that true about the, the Pepsi commercial? Yeah, I okay. was like, <clears throat> I was like 18 and I was, it was either go to a Diet Pepsi audition and wear a bathing suit or stay home and write in my sweatpants. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> totally done. So, didn't go to the audition? I didn't, and I, that was it for acting, pretty much. But um, I, when I started to write, I actually wrote a pilot for myself to be in, and when I was 18... Nobody and, does that. No, it's really very unusual, and has nothing to do with wanting to be famous, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but um, it was... Uh, I found that I loved it. I loved it. I loved being inside it and just writing, and that sort of... Then I realized this is just more organically. Yep what I want to do. So you wrote the pilot for yourself, clearly you didn't sell it or I wouldn't, you wouldn't be sitting here with me because I'd have to get through <laughs> a barrage of publicists. <laughs> but no, but um, I gave it to a producer, Joe Partington here, who was at the CBC at the time. And he said to me, you're a writer. I mean, and so just to hear that back was actually- At 18. Yeah. So that was an amazing thing to hear back from somebody. Okay. Full stop. At 18, you hadn't been to any kind of school to learn this skill. No. Did you read a book? I did, in fact. I read a book when I was at North Toronto Collegiate Institute in the library. And it was just about, um, it was before they kind of had all those books about writing. And this one was really, you know, how to write for a television show. And it was saying it's in two acts. Basically, the first act, you get up the tree. And the second act is how do you get down from the tree? And I was like, okay, good enough. Wow. Really? So, yeah. So, and, you know, then I learned to write from reading scripts, not from books or from school or anything. That's very interesting because I, I, like, I never went to school or anything like that. And I tried to read one of those books once, but I think basically we was writing with my writing partner and, you know, just knowing that, you know, there's a beginning and a middle and an end yeah. and, you know, you have to have this and an A and a B and a, it just comes to you. And of course, if you read scripts enough, you can actually learn learn the skill. You do. Well, you pick up the structure by Osmo. I mean, you can pick yep. up the structure. And you, and you realize you've been to movies. You've been to, you, you, people know the structure. Yes. You know, and, and so, and the structure continues to change and evolve, but you, you kind of know it. And so I actually find those books to be sort of unhelpful, even though I've read a lot of them, but yeah. I think they actually haven't helped the process. Well, it's interesting because I think that you have to um, actually it has to be an innate, uh, somewhat of an innate thing. Am I wrong to say that? Because, um, you know, you can say I got up the tree and now I have to get down from the tree, but how boring is it to, like, you could just say I climbed the tree and then I got down. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to know how to build. And where does that come from with for you? I mean, it just comes out of your gut. I guess so. I mean, it also came from a uh, from aspiring to, like, loving to do it, loving to, wanting to do it as good as somebody else did it. So like, I remember when I first moved out to LA and I was, um, how old? 21. Well, I went there when I was 18 to write on a TV show. That was how I was sort of, okay, I was how do you doing stand up. Okay. All right. Go, go back. I'm sorry. There's two, we haven't even gotten to my thirties, which were just, they were quiet. So that's, which good. is just now. Okay. <laughs> you owe me for that. Yeah. So stop. So <laughs> you're, you don't go to the Pepsi commercial. Right. Okay. And you show Joe Partington your script, mm-hmm. and he says you're a writer, mm-hmm. and then you are writing on a show in L.A.? No, how do you Then get? I was doing I was doing stand-up one night. And, um, Where? <clears throat> at, at Yuck Yucks. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was even a, like in their dining room when there were like four people there, and then two of them were producers from this guy, Chris Beard, who did Helen Reddy show, which of course made me laugh. And oh Sonny and Cher. Oh, my God. You know, he, yeah. did, he was on Laugh-In. He right. did all those things. And he was hiring for a sketch comedy show that was on the pl- 
Playboy channel? N- no. Yes. At 18? Yes. Oh, my Lord. I can't believe nobody's dug this up because it's Jim Carrey was on it. and What was the name of the show? I think it was called like the Sex and Violence Family Hour. It was Are you serious? Something, thank God, that nobody can find, I think. Uh, well, we're going to try and find it. Shannon's going to try and find it right now. Um, the Sex and Violence Comedy Hour? Family Hour, something like that. Family that, Hour. Yeah. That's even better. Yeah. Did you write that the actual title? No, that's that was a pretty Chris, inspired that's a very title. Yeah. title. Yeah. And uh, so it was just a sketch show, like a straight sketch show. I mean, yeah. straight, I just mean just sketch. And Yeah. And then from there, I did that summer, I did another sketch show that was for ABC that was. Um, Dick Clark, that Chris Beard also produced. So I was on that and wrote for that. Okay, too. stop. So you weren't on the sex and violence. I was. No, I was. You were oh, on it. Yeah. You were oh, on God. it. Thank you that there are no. Please don't find it. Please not now. No. Okay. So Thank God it's the radio. Shannon's using the Google. It's a dollar ninety nine <laughs> per episode on Google Play. Can I borrow your credit card? No, we'll you no? cannot. Um, oh <laughs> my God. But you can. You can get a description of the show and and see if. Uh, oh wow. I. If, if we can find, actually, if you can find one with Katie on it, I will absolutely pay for that. Oh no! No, God, no. come on! Look here, here it is. Okay, Casting it characters is. is a television series. The first sex and violence aired on seventeenth November, twenty thirteen. No, no, no. This is not the right oh, one. Oh, thank God! It's That's, it's buried and it's before the internet. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Before the interweb. So you were on that show. So you weren't just asked to be a writer because I wanted to ask if there was any kind of disappointment there. But you were asked to be on it and write on it. Yeah, for both of those shows. Okay. The, the one that was in L.A. was you know Arsenio Hall was and Jan. And Hooks and Victoria Jackson oh before they did Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Saturday Night Live. Oh my gosh! Did so, you? So did you think I'm Jan Hooks and Victoria Jackson went on to Saturday Night Live? Did you think that you were going to go on to that kind of career? At the time, I was still sort of doing. I was thinking about that kind of thing. But then when I moved to LA, my manager was like, "You should just really focus on writing." And so that's what I ended up doing. And why? I don't know why? Maybe you'd seen some of those tapes we can't find. But <laughs> you're a wonderful writer. Really, just really. You just have a great personality. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I want to set you up on a date yeah. with someone who has a great personality. <laughs> Do, no, seriously. Did you say you didn't ask why? You just accepted the fact that that was going to be your career path. In other words, I'm done doing being in front of a camera it just happened that way i mean i i performed it when jane ford my sister had a club the queen's bedroom which was an amazing club so i performed (laughs) a couple of times there but you know it's it's so all-consuming being out there and trying to write on shows that it's or movies it just sort of took over so did it get you your next writing gig is that how you you got to la you're on the playboy whatever you've got those two gigs and then i'm gonna find that even if it takes the rest of my life no yeah um i I moved out is when i wrote a spec script for family ties and i um wrote a spec script, you know, which is what you do just as a sample for, and I wrote a family ties. And also I had written a play and the play was being performed at the time. So it was the combination of the attention that the play got, which was a lot of What was the name of the play? It was called Out in America. And I did it there and in New York and, um, in 19... Oh seven before that. I was on the boards. Oh, oh, back on the boards. Back in the boards. <laughs> a while ago. Lane of- Stritch was just a young lady. <laughs> Lane Stritch was just being born. <laughs> totally. Um, so th- those two things. And then the script, uh, you know, got on Gary David Goldberg's desk and they were hiring. And he was the How does that person. happen? How does your I visualize a lot? I read Come The Magic on. of Believing and I'm not kidding. Okay. All yeah, right. No, it happened. Uh, you asked. You asked. See because Shannon's okay, horrified face. I'm not horrified. I'm like, no. how the hell did you do this at 14 and at 18? I'm amazed. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Well, I just, I'm, I don't really believe in luck necessarily. I believe that fortune can happen, but I think also like you have to, it was like the same thing of having the Aunt Connie as a, 
you know, as an influence. It's like you see that it's possible. You feel it is possible. Okay, I get that. But here's my problem with visualization. Okay, okay. I think so. I think some people sometimes, and this and this does get right to the guts of what we're talking about. I think sometimes people think if I visualize it, it's going to happen, and I'll just keep visualizing it, and it doesn't happen. So. You, if you believe and it happens, then people are like, oh, it was because I visualized it. Right. If you believe and it doesn't happen and you just keep trying to visualize something instead of taking a different path, I feel bad for the, for, about that because I feel like sometimes people need to be told that actually sometimes it is about luck. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is about for No, I'm with you there. I mean, and I, but personally, I don't think it's for me or anyone else to say to someone, you have to stop. You know, I mean, it, or you're, you don't have it. I think I've seen too many people get discouraged to a, you know, devastating well, point by somebody saying stuff like that. I don't actually think anybody doesn't have it. I actually do think it is about being in the right place at the right time sometimes. And mm-hmm. that there are people with way more talent who never get recognition Absolutely. than people with very little talent who do get recognition. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that and I think that drives people crazy sometimes. If you let that drive you crazy, you will be mad because... The fact of the matter is, there are a lot of people with a lot of talent. I agree. And I know, mean, I can, all I can say is, this is how it happened for me. It's great. No, I'm just, I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just want to talk a little bit no. about visualization. I don't mean yeah. to. I'm not. I, I so don't mean to say you're an idiot for visualizing. I don't mean that at all. Yeah. I, I respect. You know how much I respect. Well, the magic you. of believing is actually a, a kind of fantastic book, and I read it when I was 15, and it's. Phyllis Diller, by the way, highly recommended it too. Oh, so it worked for her. I love her. I mean, you know. <laughs> Could I, any of the references be in the 21st century? I'm not sure. Hey, you know what? You what? have I'm to gonna... recognize who our pioneers were. Yeah, you know, and, she and really actually, was. she was one of them. But mm-hmm. you know, what's her name? Berg, Gertrude Berg, Gertrude. No, oh my God, there was a woman who just died last year or something. She was in her 90s, and she was before even Phyllis Diller, and, and, and she was stand up. Yes. Oh wow. She was like one of the first uh, female stand ups, which made me go, I don't know anything about our history, so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying. Phyllis Diller. Diller, yeah. So talk to me more about that book. Well, just that it was actually written, you know, for GIs after World War II to sort of have them believe again in themselves and, and, to, and to imagine that they could have a, a life that they would want. That's beautiful, though. That's like... Yeah. So, in, and, and there's certain things in there that are sort of just exercises where it's just you can get past your low self-esteem and see that something's possible and feel that it's possible. So it... And to that extent, it's a really good. I'll tell you what my. I just want to say this about that, if okay. I could. This is my my thing, right? It's when you know there was that whole sort of a period where everyone was into est, or and then it was right. the secret, and then it was. And so I felt a little bit assaulted by people who are like, you know, well, you don't. The reason it's not happening for you is because <laughs> you're negative, whatever. And I was like, really? Because does that mean those people who you know are suffering from famine and war and all? It's their fault because mm-hmm. they're not hoping hard enough that they you know shouldn't be in these situations that's sort of where the hair is across my butt it has nothing to do with people who absolutely positively you know visualize and and sort of internalize it and it was i got berated for a, a there was a period of time where i actually felt berated by the people who were you know what if it's a secret then shut up about it oh that's, my god that's funny <laughs> i remember all the merchandise they had with that like buy the aladdin's lamp to rub as they're angrily rubbing their aladdin's <laughs> lamp and saying how negative you are no, it's all so much of it. Is so, so that was just a trigger, and that that, yeah. that doesn't mean that I don't. I do actually. I if I you know I I'm not a religious person, but I can feel myself chanting things to myself at times. You yeah. know, when I really feel like I have to keep my myself on track and stay in focus, and I don't think there's anything different than me 
trying to think that way than uh, somebody visualizing. Well, something. I think it's so impossible to sort of be successful, to, to manifest things, to have it happen, that it's like any, not only any tool you can have, but anything that you can have to help you sort of defeat defeat, I think is, is incredibly valuable. So it isn't sort of just, I should, don't think it's paying lip service to the, you know, just the, I mean, I, sure, I bought the secret. I did watch. <laughs> I'm gonna be. I, I bought the lamp. I bought the. I bought the Aladdin's lamp, and that's been the key to. The, that's why I got a show on NBC. No, I didn't. I didn't get the lamp. I need to get the lamp. I gotta yeah. get the lamp. I made the mistake. Shannon, of Google up the, the lamp. Secret. Yeah, with who? With me? You. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and what happened? Oh, no, my head popped oh, off. She, her head popped off and yeah. hit me. I had a bruise. Well, like, I'm sorry, but I was also in university and the. When Est was big, and yeah. like I was on the, I lived on the hall uh, in a dorm with a woman who was, for lack of a better term, an Est hole, as we called them. Oh, what? Est hole. Oh my God. You know, and then nice. I had another person later on in my life between Est and The Secret who was into Marion Williamson to the point where it was like, stop. Well, you know, if you take a little bit, of, I mean, I've seen Marion Williamson and she's actually amazing. I mean, she's somebody who's like, you know, she'll say, you know, people, we have to turn this ship around and we can do it. I mean, there are tools there. But then yeah. the, the lecture would be over and the people behind me would be like complaining. And I'm like, maybe take a touch more, like a thimble full of hope <laughs> from what just happened there. You know, well, I, you know, and the thing is, is and, and, and again, you know, I, this is where I, I say I'm not a religious person. I was raised as a Catholic. I was a oh, staunch. Ruins, that yeah. is I hear it. Then I'm like, oh, there you go. Well, I don't know. You know, it's just it was so black and white that it became nothing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't, there was nothing there for me. And, and I will say that today I feel like there are a lot of the, I equate some of these things to a kind of a religion, you know, and because I, I have a bit of a problem with things that are going wrong in the world being connected to religion, mm -hmm. um, I think that's where that comes in, right? I, I don't know. Are you a spiritual person other than that? Um, does that help you get by as well? It does. I mean, and yet it's all come back to sort of more of a humanism than it is sort of any kind of religion. Mm -hmm. and, and from what I've seen, from what I've seen, you know, in almost every religion, there are the people who truly, truly practice the truth of it. And those are people I want to know. Right. And that's sort of a common humanity, you know, so I believe in that. And I think that's, you know, kind of, in a way, the spirit of what what we do. Yeah. And it's what we're supposed to do to, I think, I think there's a responsibility in, in for me in what we do. I mean, like, miscongeniality, the fact that I remember one of the inspirations for it. I remember being on a plane, and I think it was kind of turbulence, and everybody was like, it might have been Baby Boom. We were watching some comedy, and it was the sound of the laughter of everybody laughing. I was like, that's the greatest, you know, the greatest sound. And then... Miss Congeniality was actually came out on DVD right after 9-11. Um, so it was like oh one of the God. first movies that was on planes when people were starting to fly again. Wow. And it was like that felt so gratifying to me to be part of something where it just I knew for one second it would help make the world or these people's lives just a little bit better. Let's just talk. Let's let's freeze that moment in time. Let's talk about uh, that and or today's moment in time. And. Um, like I have to write a show for, you know, uh, October, an hour's mm -hmm. worth of new comedy. And as you know, I touch a lot on current events and I'm feeling like, okay, I don't, where do you go in times that are so tough or so dark or so bleak? And what is the comics or the writer's place in that? How do you carry on when mm -hmm. you're going to make yuck yucks and there are, you know, babies washing up on shore? I mean, you can always just be 
paralyzed and do nothing or turn to the Kardashians for mm-hmm. comfort. <laughs> comfort Kardashian is actually the last K, the sister you never see. <laughs> comfort Kardashian. Comfort Kardashian. Um, you know, I, I think you do what you can. I think that's it. You do what you like when people are like, what can I do? And I think, well, God, what can I do? And then I just think, yeah, what can I do? What can I do to make the person in front of me have a better day? Or how can I say, see, what you do is you talk about these things, but it's your sense, it's your particular sense of humor where I feel better after I watch you, you know, it's not a sense of despair, you know, and that's important. It's important. It's hard. I mean, it's getting, I don't know if it's age or the the internet or the images or whatever. It seems to be, it's getting, it seems to be harder. And sometimes I think I'm not sure if there's a value in it. I mean, but you're saying that there is. Do you really think that? I don't know. I worry. And what else, the other things I worry about are now everybody, the piling on part where the stuff that, um, it's just so blatantly wrong, let's say not connected to war, just to connected to bigotry and hatred. And where it used to be like there was a soul, people would shout out or nod to it, but now everybody's on YouTube and everybody's doing this and everybody's doing that. And so the, the, the I don't want to say her name, the Kentucky clerks of the world mm-hmm. become more magnified in their stupidity than they would be if people just left it the heck alone. You know what I'm saying? What do you mean left it alone? Like, well, every cover you know, that story. Okay, at the end of the day, that woman mm-hmm. um, from Kentucky mm-hmm. who refused to issue marriage licenses had no power. She had no power because the law was the law. It was established. She had mm-hmm. she had no choice. So. I think comedy sometimes gives people power by throwing more attention on them. Right. Right. I And I had this discussion with Leah yesterday. I'm like, I'm not really sure. I don't want to talk about her any more than I want to talk about another woman who's very negative mm-hmm. and right wing. And I don't even say her name. Her initials are AC. But um, mm-hmm. best joke ever on 30 Rock about her. Uh, what was that? Oh, my God. I think it was um, Alec Baldwin was talking to uh, Tina Fey. And she was disappointed at this company was um, really a right wing company. It was owned by Halliburton or something. And it wasn't the lefty, earthy, crunchy company, gene maker that she thought it was. And she said, you know, you were right. Um, you were right. It, they're, they're crunchy on the outside uh, or earth or soft on the outside and crunchy on the inside. And he goes, yes, I know, like Ann Coulter's underwear. And I was oh. like, oh, my God, they did not. <laughs> I actually went back to find it again because I couldn't believe he said it. Wow. Well, I think it's also how we respond to these things. I mean, you know, it, th- that we then take all our energy and just fight about it or complain about it. And, and I get it. She's the, the woman in Kentucky. It's very wrong. <laughs> but it's like the power to me is in the people, is in the people whether or not we pay attention to that, what we what we do with those feelings instead of just going on and venting about it, you know? Well, people make videos and they think they're cute and funny and it's, you know, and I saw one guy who did it to, you know, I don't remember the song. I think it was from Chicago and somebody sent me that. And, and you know, there, and but, you know, during that video, he kept calling her a bitch. And I'm like, I can't know, you know? See, that I, whole kind of divisive thing, it's just sort of, it, to me, it's just a waste of energy. I think what she did is terrible, but, you know, growing, having been gay since I'm 16, it's like I've been... And you ended up on the Playboy channel at 18. Oh, my God. Wait, can we go back? People, please don't go back. (laughs) Fully clothed, wearing harem pants or whatever I wore. Oh, yeah, harem pants. Those are the best because you didn't have to carry a bag. You could just throw it all in your crotch. (laughs) Hold on. I got to get a lipstick. (laughs) It's Amazon. 
my God. Yeah. So, so uh, anyway, I don't, I think it's, you know, it is overwhelming what's happening in the world, but I think the more we can do just to sort of do what we can and, and bring sort of the spirit that, like, for example, I love Kentucky. I went there a year ago and I was like, I thought I had an idea of what it was like and what the people were like. Yeah. And the people I met were so warm and so accepting. And I think these ways that we, the people that we focus on make us sort of biased against a whole group of people. And we're just, then we're just buying into the same thing that, you know, that they're buying into. Like everybody in the South is bad in the the U.S. is what you're saying, and they're not. Well, this divisive thing I think is just, I don't know. I think that's a huge distraction. But people using comedy as a divisive thing is is, is what, that's what's sort of getting at my butt. Now, I know that people are going to say, oh, well, why aren't you talking about so-and-so? And and I'm not going to talk about her in my show. I just don't. Other than to say, stop talking about her because mm. you know you're, you're you're giving power to people who. But I feel like I feel like let me know again. Um, I feel like people are, are trying to use these things as a vaulting place for a career in comedy. Ah, am I am I wrong or that may well be the case. I mean, do you feel pressure when when something like that comes out to talk about it, or do you feel pressure to defend? not talking about it um i just don't if i choose not to and then people come up to me after a show and say why didn't you talk about this mm-hmm. um i just tell them you know i just tell them why and i like to look for you know, now it, it's become harder and i'm not complaining but because so many people have so many uh, so much ability to sort of get themselves out there and do funny stuff uh, certain subjects get beat to death I, mm-hmm. i've always tried to take the other uh, look uh, it's not on purpose it's just like you said intuitively you knew this is how you told the story mm-hmm. intuitively my brain goes somewhere else and my angle if you will on a on a, a topic sometimes even i'm like where did that come mm-hmm. from that's that's weird oh, that's but, but it's funny yeah. right so that's good but now things get so beat to death that i uh, sometimes i try to find sort of more obscure things that are maybe more interesting that people haven't beat to death you know news wise well it's like this the narrative for lack of a better word of of the media is sort of telling us trying to instruct us how to do our comedy it's sort of being yeah. so specific it's giving us in these marching orders that it's like well i don't necessarily want to do that when i was in new york um living in new york last year one of the things i did is i had an um a record store downstairs and so I bought a bunch of comedy albums and ones that I used to listen to, Robert Klein and, you know. Bill Cosby. <laughs> oh, my God. Never, actually. Really? No, although I enjoyed Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Yeah, I yeah. did like that. But yeah. um, Robert Klein and Lenny Bruce, you know. Well, yeah, of course, right? Oh, my God. Lenny Bruce's piece about Jesus coming to um, the uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral is so funny, so brilliant and smart. And he talks about the time in a brilliant way, in a subversive way, but in a way that his audience, when you listen to it, because mm-hmm. that was also that's also part of those comedy albums to me is, you know, the sound of the audience, right? You know, and the audience at Carnegie Hall or wherever it was that he was doing it, they were where they laughed, how smart they were, they were part of it, and it wasn't mean spirited, actually. Right. It was smart and it was subversive and it was really funny. Is there any room for that anymore? I mean, on two levels. Look at it from the uh, the way of how we get our stuff nowadays. Like, I mean, we're having a conversation. That's probably not how people package things. It's like, oh, you can you can take twelve seconds at a time, um, mm-hmm. and that's all you can take. If you look at sort of the uh, a lot of the shows that were even the news, it's shorter and shorter and shorter. The stories aren't very long. Um, and then there's the other side of that, which is uh, you, the, you, the things you can't say. If, to harken back to Lenny, to Lenny Bruce and even uh, Stephen Wright, right? It's um, 
are they just words? And you can't just say they're just words anymore because there's a certain level of political, political correctness, if you will, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, where everybody's shouting at everyone. And if you're not towing that line and you're not on this side of the, of this or that side of that, you're sort of screwed. I'm, mm -hmm. I, um, I don't know if you feel that pressure at all. Well, I mean, I think there is room. It's just depending on how, you know, popular you want to be. You know, I think I love the idea that you're bringing back conversation. You know, that was one of the first things when I moved back from L.A. That was one of my um, culture shocks, actually, coming to Toronto, because I was talking to John Alcorn mm -hmm. at your club, actually, <laughs> and he was asking how I was or whatever, and I was talking about something, and I'm like, how weird. He's still paying attention. Uh, that's so weird. <laughs> looking weird. at my eyes. <laughs> totally. totally. Why you, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I have to look at my so, shoes now. So for, you know, even for me, it was weird to not be talking in sound bites and, yeah. you know, but I think it's important and I think there is a place for it. There is. Well, you just um, did a show. Um, if it's okay if I bring this show sure. up. Um, this one's all right. Meeting yeah. the angles. Yeah. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. Working the angles. No, this one's Working good. the angles. Yeah. Sorry. Um, uh, and uh, that you describe in your bio, it's, it's you say something like it lived for a short, bright summer or a bright, brief, whatever, a, a, a brief, bright summer. Mm -hmm. um, it, because it didn't get picked up for a second season and it aired on NBC right. and um, on Global. Uh, so... What, how does that feel? Because that's today. That's today. You're trying to make comedy for today. Mm -hmm. um, in this world that we live in, for mainstream television, if you will, that was a network. Right. Oh, my God. What is that? Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird. So all of that. Talk about all of that for me. You know, A, a network, B, a, a sitcom, mm -hmm. um, C, you know, I, I was talking to you during that time, and I know that it was difficult for you. Well, you know, somebody once said about um, doing stuff in LA let's say or doing stuff on network it's like people are always like why is stuff so bad you know and the thing is he said it, they don't know how impossible it is to have something be good you know a lot of the things that are really good have actually just slipped through okay you know movies and stuff that, that you find out wow they actually had no interference there was nothing that kind of no middleman in between them and the audience okay <clears throat> and angles was like it, it, it was an amazing experience and yeah, please, doing something on NBC is ridiculous pressure. Right. And you know, I remember when it um, when it came out in Toronto. We in Canada, we actually got really good reviews, and it was sort of you know we had a small but very loyal audience. So mm -hmm. I felt like it was a success. And then it came on in the states, and I was like, oh, let me check the review in the New York Times. Oh no! And I was like, oh my god! But um, but, but the thing was that it wasn't that they didn't like it. It was to me, it was about the disdain. It was the attitude of because this is silly or this is whatever. And I had a you know brief moment of feeling really bad about myself and really kind of embarrassed. And oh, then the that's... most amazing thing was like, I was like, no, you're actually wrong because it was intended to just be this. It was intended to be silly. You know, it was intended to be bright. And I'm not going to be sort of shamed out of that because of what you think. So it was the first time where I did like a, you know, like when people would talk back to Simon Cowell and I never understood how can those children do that, you know? Well, oh, I you're Simon. I disagree, Simon. I'm like, oh my God. You did not just disagree with Simon Cowell. <laughs> so you, so in Canadian. You, you disagreed. I did. I mean, because I thought what they're criticizing or what they're attacking is the wrong thing, is the spark, is a little spark of light, is little something silly. And that's just like, don't be above it. It just, you know, it isn't for you. 
that's the most I could say about it. So that was an interesting thing to kind of defend my own, to to come to my own defense in a way, and yeah. for what we put out there. So it was. Um, I was proud of the show. I was happy with it. I wish we had gone a second season. And NBC was actually amazing to work for and very supportive. And it just didn't get the numbers that they needed. So Is it impossible enough. to get the numbers on network anymore? Uh, that's that's the other thing, right? I mean... You, you don't get much of a shot. And that's, you know, they get, you get a couple of episodes. Sometimes you get one, you know. It's crazy because, you know, I, I think All in the Family and... Uh, I don't think All in the Family actually had the numbers until like the second or third season. And I mean, that would, first of all, that show, uh, you've heard this ad nauseum, could never happen today mm -hmm. for a, a bazillion reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and, and again, that brings me back to the people, are, people just lost their sense of humor, have they? Because, you know, that show was smart and funny. Well, or was it not? Or did oh you? Oh God, I loved it. I mean, that Mary Tyler Moore show, all those shows that Mash, you know, that I grew up watching, that were really influential. And you know, that's also why I could just read one book because I had shows like that, mm -hmm. and those were dramas. Mm -hmm. They're dramas, mm -hmm. you know, really, really funny drama. And I think one of the things also that happened is when you develop television. But movies were worse for this, where they would sort of say separate out comedy from drama, and I'm like. It's actually comedy and tragedy mm -hmm. that are the opposites, right. not comedy and drama. Right. So all of the drama got taken out of, and drama is structure, and drama is stakes, mm -hmm. and drama is all the stuff that you, why you'd want to watch something week after week. And there are shows on now that I just can't. It's like line, laugh, line, laugh, line, yeah. laugh. I'm like, there's nothing going on here, and I can't bear it. Yeah. Um, I just totally forgot what I was going to say because I was going to ask Like you my so mother once said about, you know, it's enough of laugh tracks. And I'm like, oh, my God, my mother's saying that. It's really... They should have stopped five years ago then. Yeah. You know? it's a, And it's an interesting, if you look at shows like some of the shows on Netflix now, um, and I found this interesting, Orange is the New Black didn't, you know, get any, it, it was entered as a drama, the, the first, no, as a comedy. Right. And people saw it as a drama. Right. And that was, you know, there was some fershnizzle around that and mm -hmm. whether, you know, it should be entered into this category or that category. And I, I'm of the opinion now that they really should just make a category called dramedy. Mm -hmm. That's and, a very good and, idea. And get, you told some people. Yeah. <laughs> Is anyone listening? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> make a comedy called. I have an idea. I'd like to put forth. Hold on, I'm gonna have some water. <laughs> <laughs> when are you gonna have the water? I couldn't tell. Are you gonna have it? A dramedy. Um, yeah. No. I, I, it, but it is what it is. I mean, The Sopranos to me was. Mm. A dark comedy. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, my yeah. God. I laughed out loud on more than one occasion. Of course, mm -hmm. there were times I was like, I can't stand this violence, and I'm not going to watch this show anymore. But it was so well written that, you know, I got over it. Um, and some of it, you know, getting over it was getting over misogyny. But I understood when I watched the episode that made me turn it off. When I watched it again, I understood what they were trying to convey. Um, I'm not making an excuse. I did. But please, there was a time when... Christopher, uh, they did an intervention with Christopher Maltesanti, and he was like, you know, he, he was a, he was a guy, he was a mob guy, and he was <laughs> like, the time you left me, and all the guys got around <sighs> yeah. and they read their, you know, yeah. the time you left me outside the thing, <laughs> and I had to do the, I had to pull the job myself. I'm like, yeah. oh my god, yeah. I literally was like peeing. So, uh, but they managed to somehow. Nobody had a problem with that being a, a drama, um, but I, 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 I 
saw it more as a as a dark comedy. Oh, that's I could be wrong, yeah. but I, I'm laughing out loud. So something has to something has to. The be. Sopranos. I really just saw it as the people I went to high school with. So it was hard. <laughs> I was like, this is is this even drama? This is really just the Christophers and all that. Yeah, that's just yeah. my uh, these and those. Yeah, that's just my. Uh, I, now it, let me let me look, look look back to some of the things I actually wanted to pick your brain about in terms of uh, writing and the art of comedy. You so you, you existed in a writer's room on more than one occasion. Um, first on television, and then um, I want to talk to, about the difference between TV and, and film writing. Mm-hmm. So um, so stand up is one thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you did you did you've done stand up your own words. Have you mm-hmm. ever performed anybody else's words? I did once, and it was a very it was weird. I, really? It was like kind of like wearing as if I went on wearing his clothes. Like it was a weird thing. Like they were funny jokes, but it just didn't work for me. No. Yeah. Have you? No. Yeah. Oh my God, no. Have you ever tried? Like, no. Somebody, okay, why? I couldn't. Well, because it's the same thing. It'd yeah. be like uh, asking me to write with my left hand. I, I mean, I could, but it would be bad. Yeah. No, no, it's intuitive. It's from the, it's from your nutch. It's from down there. You can't, <laughs> I don't know why it's from down it's there. It's from your gaderum, as I, which is, I think, a Yiddish thing, maybe. Uh, Henry Winkler said it. So it's from an actual Jewish person. So well, I, you know what? I, that's not in I my Yiddish did. vernacular, but <laughs> it is not. now. My gaderum. Thank you. Do you think that there's something wrong with performing someone else's? No, I, I don't think there's something wrong. Oh my gosh, no. In no way am I saying that I think there's something wrong with that. I just can't do it. Right. Now, having said that, you've obviously written for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, which I also have not. Well, yeah, I, I have actually. That's not true. I have written for other people, but I, I've never seen anybody perform something I did and get a laugh instantly, like the next day. Shannon was doing a one-woman show, and I, um, I, I, I punched two lines for her, mm-hmm. and I was in the audience, and they laughed, and I was like, oh, <laughs> hitting my wife, going, oh, "I wrote that. I wrote that. <laughs> what an idiot!" So, but you see your stuff on television. You're watching an episode of Family Ties, and mm-hmm. and what does that feel like? Well, family ties. By the way, I will drop that from the resume when I decide Never. to be five. One of years the top hundred. Yeah, shows no, it and- was really. I mean, it was really formative and really amazing. And Gary David Goldberg, who was the executive producer, was my one of the few people I would say was a genuine mentor. I mean, he was That's so amazing. generous, and it was actually an amazing experience. And he taught me how to be a showrunner. And I didn't do it for many years. I mean, I did it in my mid twenties, but really, when I was doing Angles, I was thinking a lot about Gary because. You know, he was somebody who the team and the feeling in the room was really important to him. And the team, it wasn't just about him. He was, you know, I heard something like, you know, I'd rather, this wasn't him, but it applied to him. You know, rather than take 100 steps alone, I'd rather take one step with 100 people. And that was what he was like, you know, the show and what it felt like with Gary. And he... Was he Canadian? I'm just curious. <laughs> no. He was Canadian. He was a Jewish man from Brooklyn and just amazing. And he plucked people out of obscurity like I was doing nothing at the time. And, you know, and s- same with everybody who was on that show who went on to... Well, that, that, and that, I, I will say this about that. That does feel good. I mean, it, ha- I mean, I, it feels good. I, I know that just having had the club and seeing people perform five or 10 minutes and saying, no, you know what? You need to do an hour and you're mm-hmm. going to do an hour mm-hmm. and here's the date you're going to do your mm-hmm. hour. Now go sit, go home and write an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then watching them sell out a room is like, feels good. Yeah. So the mentoring thing is actually. Well, and you did that for me too. When I started back, you know, in the last couple of years, I mean, you sort of encouraged me. Did to, I? Yeah, you did. Remember? <laughs> I didn't mean to. You yeah, don't need no. my help. <laughs> no, well, it was, you know, I hadn't done it in a long time. Yeah, and, you I know, remember I, that conversation, I actually right? took sort of improv class, things to get back to remember what it was to actually perform. And then being on stage, there was this incredible familiarity. 
that, yeah. in this place that I love being, but still it was nice to, it was important for me to hear from you who I really respect, whom, whom I really respect. Um, but yeah, Family Ties was an amazing um, experience because also Gary would let your voice be in the show. Like he really respected the people you know, on the, the team. Yeah, and the writing. And so often when I would do shows later on staff, the showrunner might just arbitrarily change what you had just to make it theirs. And that's, you lose the joy of it that way, you know? And Family Ties was where you could, you had to aspire to, be, to do the, your best work. And he was strict in that way, but it really could feel like you you were part of a team. You're a little bit kissed by uh, a little luckiness here. I, I'm I know, sorry, these I are know. not the stories I hear from a lot of uh, people who've written in Hollywood or in, uh, you know, on shows, on network shows. And, and I've even had some bad experiences just writing with, you know, a third person in the mix of my normal uh, mix where mm -hmm. somebody's trying to beat me to a joke and I'm like, what's happening and why is this, what is going, and I'm not used to it. So uh, you, you, you did never have that experience. Is that true? Oh, I've had it. I mean, I've had other, a lot of other experiences. This to me was just the bar and this was saying, here's how it can be. So like when we did angles, that was how I wanted it to be for everybody in the room. And it's not easy. It's not easy to achieve that level of peace and, you know, and um, to have the team be really effective. And and anything else to me is I've experienced other things in the room and showrunners who were not nearly as generous. And like I say, who would change things arbitrarily just to make it theirs. It's bad. You know? I mean, it's 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 bad. It's bad and it doesn't feel good. And it always reminds me of The Apprentice, like when the person's like, I want to be a project manager, and then they are, and then they're just ridiculous. <laughs> That's to me is what some Who's showrunners Who's going to be the like. next host of The Apprentice if Donald Trump becomes president of the United States? Because that really is the biggest question. <laughs> right. This is why you cannot leave the stage is because we need you just to hold our hand through this. What is oh, happening? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I do. All I know is I, I just hope they just keep, be, you know, the Republicans just keep busy doing themselves in back and forth you know i mean each one a bigger uh nip knop than the other one for lack I of mean, a better they word might have i jumped the shark with this seriously i, I feel like it Fonzie has jumped, jumping yeah, the shark i feel like it has jumped the shark i do yeah. because i mean can you really keep this up for another year i love that canadians are like you know we've had this is the longest elections period here right you know we've had a really long um period running up to the election because Stephen Harper pinned the election at this time and then cl closed this off then so there'd have to be longer campaigning and it was like eight weeks or ten weeks or something and it was like ten weeks how are we going to put up with this for ten weeks and I'm like ten weeks it's two years in the states the guys no sooner elected than they're like trying to take them down right I mean Hillary's been running since Cher broke up with Sonny that's how long this woman's been running for, for president oh my god are you kidding my me? brother lived near where they lived in Chap where's the Chap where are they from? Chappaqua? Yeah, yeah. Their place right, in New York. New Their York, fake yeah. place in New yeah, York. Yeah, yeah. And saw <laughs> Their her fake place in New York because I want to be a senator. Because <laughs> he saw her once at the at the butcher or something, and yeah. and she was really smiley. And my brother went home to his wife and said, "Hillary's going to run for president." <laughs> that was when, that's so, how we know because she's yeah, smiling at smiling the butcher. At the butcher. <laughs> Totally. I mean, really, I, and that was 17 years ago. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 I know. I mean, but it's just a, that just makes me laugh. And, and here we are. Right. We're still we're well, what are we like four weeks away? And it's like people have stopped paying attention. <laughs> Just, yeah, totally. We haven't won an election. I'm sorry. I tuned out. That's how Stephen Harper's actually going to win again. Because people are going to be like, what? Donald and his, Trump. And his people not... are going to show yeah. up because everybody else will have forgotten in Canada to vote. Because yeah, it took too long. Oh I got to go to the beer store. 
No, no, I know. I, I paid attention for six weeks. Now I'm done. <laughs> My window is shut. Um, yeah, no, I just think they need to keep each other busy. I, I don't. I mean, there, I, there's the Hillary email thing. I don't. I, I'm sorry. She had email. I don't know. I do just, you even know what that? Can you read the news for me so I don't have to do anything? I have skin? to read some more because I, I've, I've had a hard time lately. It's been, you know, getting me down. But I have a show coming up, so I really need to. Oh, where's that going to be? Um, thanks for interviewing okay, me on my nice. show, uh, Other Art of Conversation. <laughs> no, it's just because it's a conversation. I, I'm actually going to be doing a show in Toronto. I'll be doing a free workshop show um, to workshop this stuff because I can't charge people oh. <laughs> if I don't know if it's funny. I never know if it's funny. You and I had this discussion, yeah. right, when you go out on stage and you're like, well, what do you... I don't. I just mm. keep dancing, right, mm-hmm. as fast as I can until I get them to laugh or take out the pen and go, "That joke sucked." So mm-hmm. look at me. I'm scribbling it out, which also gets a laugh. And then uh, I'm off to uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and then Provincetown, Mass. For oh, nice nine shows. So fantastic. Yeah. So y- you didn't have the cutthroat thing so much happening in the writing room. You had a good. You get a good experience. Now let's talk about let's talk about writing a blockbuster hit movie like Miss Congeniality. Mm-hmm. First of all, you just had this idea out of nowhere. I mean, you know, I mean, come on. It just seems, it seems so easy. I know, right? It was so right. This was not the secret. This was like, believe me, there were a lot of years (laughs) where I'm like, Jesus. Well, you have to just, you also have to work extraordinarily hard and get over, you know, a lot of abuse. Just (laughs) tell that story. I think that no one knows what it's like to go from, okay, I've never, like, I've written, I'm now written a blockbuster movie. How do you, where do you start? Where does it? Oh, that one was, I was working on a TV show with Mark Lawrence and Karen Lucas, and we actually all wrote it together. And Mark came in, and he, it was the day after Ellen DeGeneres had hosted the Emmys for the first time, Mm -hmm. and she wore a dress. No. Yes. No. And so it was based on how uncomfortable Ellen looked in a dress. Mark had the idea for, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, undercover FBI in the... Miss America pageant. Oh, my gosh. So we went out and we, you know, developed it, you know, with the three of us. And then we went out and pitched it. And, like, no one was interested. No one was interested. As, as Mark said, it was like the time waiting by the phone, like the time before Alexander Graham Bell. That was kind of what it was like. <laughs> and so then we just started. And, like, extreme things. Like, where this guy was like, who do you see in this? And, you know, and actually, we kind of would love Sandra Bullock. And he was like, I know Sandy. She's not going to. It was like stuff like that where you're like, all right, I'll just quit. So (laughs) we um, got a bunch of no's and then we just, you know, started to write it. And to be, I I actually thought, I was like, I had this little feeling. I was like, there is something about this. There's just something about it. It's not like this thing where you, I would inevitably see that it would become this huge. And I didn't do the secret. It wasn't anything like that. It was just this little feeling. And to me, it was about. I didn't beat you up on that, did you? Because I now I feel like you're defensive. I didn't know. No, no, I'm not defensive at all. I'm really saying I'm sorry. It's also I, been yeah, no. Okay. I'm also saying it's it's been incredibly hard. Yes. And to continue to believe is the way what I have to continue to sort of dig up. And that is the story with this, with miscongeniality. Everybody said no. We then started to write it. And so we just wrote it on spec. We then went back and, you know, our agent read it and loved it and so set up meetings having already written it. And then pitched it again, and everybody wanted it. And then it was sold in a bidding war, and um, Castle Rock got it. Wow. And that's how it happened. So it, it happened where, you know, and Mark, you know, will say that I, I was like, Mark, we cannot give up on this thing. And I don't know why, because it wasn't like it was a huge success when we went out the first time. 
So that was how it happened. And that to me is that's sort of more how things happen, which is like you just cannot. OK, just give tell up. me how you felt when the thing blew up. I mean, were you just like, OK, pinch me or I'm paying myself or what's happening? Well, it was gradual because it wasn't, you know, the, went to the premiere and that was fun. And then it came out. And it wasn't immediate. It was sort of I remember friends sort of saying like the Hollywood thing of like this thing has legs or it's still <laughs> hanging on or whatever. And it really was kind of. You know, then it became successful. And then over the years that it's become something that, you know, people do watch over and over is just an unbelievable feeling. It See, is. I, just, I, I, I don't know. I loved it for the first time. So I always thought it was great. Right? It was. Yeah. I mean, and it it's did like striptease. Well. That, that became something other than oh, striptease. What was <laughs> the other one? Berkeley? Oh, my gosh. I enjoyed that. Oh, my. I could watch that over Comedy and over. Comedy classic. Oh, poor thing. Okay. Yeah, no, she's all right, though. She's okay. I okay. saw her once. She seemed pretty happy. Okay, good. She was all right. That was a... But, you know, that, to me, it was like it feels amazing because it was against it really was against all odds, as everything is when you you know, actually make something happen. But to have it be that successful was just sort of impossible. So I'm going to cut to now um, and talk a little bit about basically what you just said, which was you just had to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. Mm -hmm. um, so you're back on stage and um, what's, what do we have for time? We're, okay, so we're back on stage and you, thank you, um, now have just performed a piece in New York City mm -hmm. um, that to bring it full circle is really about trying. Yeah, it's called The Value of Trying. And it was really, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start performing again is because in working, especially in movies, like you're just told, like I remember pitching something that was really from the heart. Here's what I want to do. Here's the story I want to do. And then at the end of it, this woman goes, I want to do a movie about a genie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, I got to get out. But that's really what the career is like. That's what it's like as a writer, yeah. as a professional writer. I like writer. it. Can you change the, to, can to, you change change the black man to a white woman? And oh my the, God. Right? A friend of mine wrote a movie about, wrote uh, Janis Joplin, one of those, you know, yep. and, it was, yep. yeah, and it had a pretty high profile, but the people that she was working for, he was like, can it be more like the movie In America? And she was like, you want her to be like an Irish man? And he's, <laughs> he's like, yes, that's what I would like. So that's what the career's like. And so I, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to perform is because I wanted to say what I want to say. I don't want someone to say no or I want this to be, you know, a movie about a genie. So, yeah, so I did The Value of Trying. Can you uh, read us a little? Oh, sure. Ec an excerpt? Well, the gist of it is that it's time to shed a light on what it is to try. You know, that it's all about making it. And to me, that's kind of a bullshit notion because it sort of implies that everything else we do is, is a failure, you know? And um, so, so like, instead of thinking that those things are for nothing, what if it's actually the opposite? What if that thing we do and mm -hmm. how we try, if that leaves something behind? Okay. As Yoda once said, by the way, Yoda, baby, old man, creature. <laughs> I don't know. Yoda was like, I'm not going to do the impression, but he was like, do or not do, there is no try. But I think, little dude, there is try. You know, the magic of this place of life is life to life. It's sort of when people are doing things, but it's really more when we're trying, you know, when you put something out there for better or worse. Like, you know who I love? I love those guys who have the guts to propose to a girl on a jumbotron. <laughs> All vulnerable on one knee on a jumbotron. <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote Raisin in the Sun, once said, I believe we can impose beauty on our future. First of all, I'm glad she said it before Twitter, <laughs> before it was followed by a stampede of other sentences. And Dostoevsky said, I know I sound pretentious, but Dostoevsky said, I don't even know his first name. <laughs> He said, beauty will save the world. Beauty will save us. I believe in us. And how do we do it from the heart, from whatever expression we choose? They say that the heart is like 500 times the energy of the mind, which would explain a lot of my girlfriends. 
Oh, there was the one. Oh, here they come. There was the one who threatened me with a penknife. The one who thought she saw the ghost of my dead father in the car with her. The one who tried to hit me. And most offensively, the one who, when we went to Paris, spoke English with a French accent. <laughs> sure, they were pretty. <laughs> Apparently like to date narcissists because I like a lot of alone time. It's true. You can actually be in the house with them. They have no idea you're there. They're like, penny for my thoughts. Oh. So anyway... That's sort of just the gist of it, a little bit, little piece of that. Yeah, and it, it's uh, it's actually a beautiful piece, and I cried at the end. Oh, thanks. For, I was crying at the subway thanks, on my way here. Reading. Thanks oh, really? for nothing. Yeah, we didn't really want to put too much time into it, so Shannon read it on the subway. Um, <laughs> but uh, so before we go, let's just let me ask you: Are you are you trying to redefine then what success is? Because you're saying it's not about making it; it's about the fact that you just tried. So mm. in in this world, not just the industry of comedy, not the industry of entertainment, just everything. Is that the legacy we leave? Is that if because we tried, we've mm. changed something? And is that, is that now how you want people to think about success? I, I do, because I think that success is sort of just a, a bullshit notion. It's somebody else's idea of what you should be doing. And like a friend of mine, she, she's an amazing actress, and she said, I did a play, and there were like 10 people in the audience. And sometimes I think, why am I doing this? And I think to to touch 10 people or one person or whatever it is, to that sort of spark that we kind of give each other. And there is such hope in that, that I think that's what it's about. I think this sort of hierarchy of what success is, is empty. I mean, I've experienced it to be empty. To me, it wasn't the success of, of Miss Congeniality, but it was having it on the planes when people needed it. And it was mm -hmm. the way that it's inspired and, and helped people along the way. That is thrilling to me. To, to have been able to do that is, I feel like that's a job well done. You know, so even I'm, I'm going to say this because I, I have seen some of the worst stuff ever and I still talk about it. So I'm not sure that the bomb isn't even actually a success. One of the mm -hmm. best times I ever had going to a play was one of the worst pieces of just it was so bad that I'm still talking about it in a way where we were we were giddy when it was over because <laughs> it was done. But I'm laughing right now and smiling because that I'll never forget that play. <laughs> right. Very good. That's good. It's like just a, interesting. I never thought yeah. of it that way. Yeah. Like a friend of mine who was, she was so tortured at a play that she had to leave and it was this really small theater and she was like on her way out and she, on the way out, she knocked down a curtain and all the girls, <laughs> the girls were dressing behind it. So it's like, there's a story. There's a night at the theater. You'll oh, never forget. Jane Ford. Katie Ford. Yeah, just joking. Just joking. <laughs> oh it got you so good. <laughs> Oh, it was beautiful. On the other K, comforting Kardashian. Katie, Katie Ford. Ford. Yeah. yeah. Um, Katie Ford, thank you so much for, uh, oh, that was so, oh, I wish I had a picture of your face just now. <laughs> so not worth it on radio. Gorgeous. Yeah. Jane Ford, Katie, Katie. <laughs> I, I tried. a good one. Jane's but awesome, I tried. so no problem. Yeah, Katie is awesome. I tried, and I think it was at 30 seconds. Okay. okay. So, Katie, thank you so much for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Um, will you come back when oh, we gosh, launch yeah. the uh, podcast? I I'd just want to say this about that. Can't wait. Reviving the other conversation. I had a great conversation with you, and uh, I could talk to you all day. Let's do it. Let's just turn off everything and just keep talking. That would be nice. Um, all right. I've been Maggie Casella. You're listening to The Art of Comedy on Peach Radio. Thanks for listening, and uh, we hope you listen again. <laughs>